thanking them for the time, et cetera, and saying, hey, I took the time to capture my understanding of where you're at. It also sort of get into the next steps. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a look at this and give me some feedback before our next interaction, because this understanding from today is kind of guiding my preparation for the next step. And then what I would do is I'd link to the Google Doc and I would intentionally not give them permission to access it. <laughs> and the reason I do that is the first, I just need to know, like we could still do the next meeting, but if you didn't request access, I know for sure, right? You have an indirect. Well, these days there's really amazing like SaaS products for doing that kind of thing. But if you don't have access to that as a seller, there's a simple trick. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Ryan Valancourt. He's the Vice President of Sales at Revenue.io. And in our conversation, Ryan talks about how his career in journalism gave him the greatest foundation for his career in sales. We dig into the lessons that Ryan learned as a journalist that have carried directly over into sales and the lessons that he imparts to the sellers on his team as well. For instance, as a journalist, he learned that the only objective is to deeply understand, to detach from the outcome and delight in learning something new, which is great advice for sellers. We also dive into the importance of writing to your success in sales. Ryan believes if you cannot synthesize your conversation with the buyer and reflect it back to the buyers in, in writing in a way that confirms your understanding, even lends clarity to their own challenges, well, then you don't understand the topic. You have to go back and dig deeper with your questions. We also get into the lessons that he learned about trust from his days in journalism, as in how trust is your currency. Uh, why would a reader keep reading if a writer gives them reason to mistrust them? Well, similar it is for a seller and a sales leader and a team builder. Why as a team sales leader, why would people follow you if you've given them reason to mistrust you? And similar with a buyer, why would they trust you as a seller if you've given them reason to mistrust you? So, great lessons all the way around, coming from journalism into sales. But before we get to Ryan, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing by leaving us a review. So, thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Ryan, welcome to the show. Andy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, a pleasure to have you here. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. What do I do? I do sales. I help other people do sales as mm -hmm. VP of sales here at revenue.io. Uh, that's, that's the day job. That's the, the, the professional mission. Uh -huh. I, um, I'm a dad. I've got two kids. And kids are old? My kids are six and three. So you've been doing some of the whole homeschooling then. <laughs> we did go through some of that. Although I, um, you know, if, if my wife listens, eventually she'll definitely catch me. If I uh, claim to have done any of the schooling, I, I didn't. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I, yeah. Don't take credit for that. I will not. I will not. And, uh, yeah, you and I share a, a common interest, which is we love to bicycle. We though, do. Yeah. Though you're much, you're much better at it than I am, I, I presume. 
that is a presumption you make. I think um, I, um, I I probably log a few more miles because I know you spend plenty of time uh, in in New York City where it's harder, or at least log more miles outside uh, because I live in the the cycling paradise of the, the greater Los Angeles area. Yeah, I mean, you get to like you live right in the foothills, right? So you're you're up in the mountains, and and for people. Maybe I've been to Los Angeles. Tend not to think about it. It's, it's it's basically a little patch of land surrounded by mountains. You know, I will say for any of your listeners who who, who share our passion or are interested in riding bikes and don't already know this, Los Angeles is uh, truly, I think, one of the best places in the world to live if you ride bikes. And it's counterintuitive because of our well. It's crowded and so on, right? Yeah, that's right. But um, Los Angeles, if you're lucky enough to fly into LAX on a clear day, you realize, wow, it's it's really a mountain city. Um, so especially if you like to ride bikes like I do in, in the mountains. And um, and yeah, I live here in Pasadena, California, right up against Angeles National Forest, which is where I like to get lost on the weekends. Very cool. Very cool. All right, someday, because we just really started getting to know each other right at the start of the pandemic, someday soon, we'll, you'll have to pull me up some of those mountains. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, like, put your hand on my back and, and ride up. <laughs> or maybe I'll get my e-bike. So I have you a friend know, Andy, actually, I should say, speaking of shared passions, yes, um, we, we, we both share a passion uh, for the for the written word, for reading them and and for writing them our, ourselves, and I'd be remiss mm-hmm. if I didn't congratulate you on uh, on your excellent book, which I'm lucky to have an early um, pre copy of at least digitally. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on on the solid copy, but um, well deserved praise and, and, and recognition. Uh, huge oh, thank you. I can't wait to to share it with my team. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I mean. Yeah, you, you you have sort of this very unusual path coming into sales, which is you started as a journalist. You know, talking about the written word is, so what got you into journalism, first and foremost? Then we'll talk about the path from journalism to sales, which is one of the more unusual ones. Yeah, you know, I think um, I got into it um, for a couple of different reasons. I think the simplest reflection, though, is... When I was finishing school, I went to uh, Colorado College in Colorado Springs, great mm. liberal arts institution. Great liberal arts institution, yep. Yeah, and I was I was pretty clear I didn't know what I wanted to, to do with my life. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I studied political science. It was my major, and I dabbled in college with being in politics, so participating in political campaigns, community advocacy, that kind of thing. Um, which was enough for me to get a taste to know that while political science was really the lens through which I enjoyed learning about the world, I wanted nothing to do with being in politics. <laughs> the business of politics, yes. The business of politics. And part of the reason was actually just because I found one summer I worked on a, a ballot initiative campaign that was supportive of an issue that I was really passionate about at the time. And, and I, I went into this campaign in this project, just, you know, brimming with excitement and enthusiasm for the subject matter. And I came out of it just really bored and burnt out on the subject matter. Like my politics and the issue hadn't changed, but I was so hungry 
basically to learn something new. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that I didn't want to be in politics per se, but those were the conversations I was more or less interested in having and and, and learning about. Um, And also knowing that my whole life in school, I was able to, you know, essentially get by or thrive where I was because writing came relatively naturally to me. I found journalism. I, I found reporting as something that would enable me to continue to be essentially a professional learner. You know, that's mm-hmm. how I think about journalism and, and, and reporting. Right. And I figured that in, as a, as a journalist, I wouldn't be limited by the same sort of content every day. I, I'd basically be, you know, learning about new things, which was really, really true about the profession. And I recommend it for that reason. So, you are what, what a cub reporter, as they used to say. Uh, yeah. And we were working for a newspaper. What, what were you, who were you writing for? Yeah, I, so I spent probably my, I guess it was my first eight or nine years out of college working for a variety of newspapers throughout the metropolitan um, LA area. Um, sm- small dailies to sort of larger metros covering a lot of the, the the main cities in and also outside of of, of central LA. Hmm. So reporting on what? I was reporting. I mean, I did everything. You know, I I did your classic sort of local city beat reporting. I was the city hall guy, um, covering what, whatever was in, in, important in, say, you know, the city of Glendale, California, which is an area mm-hmm. where I spent a lot of time. Um, for I, the last several years of my journalism career, before I ended up switching, I worked for a a, a really amazing independent um, weekly newspaper. Um, called the Los Angeles Downtown News that basically existed to chronicle the story of urban renewal in downtown LA. And within that framework, I was writing about everything from um, the dynamics of the real estate development market and the politics of real estate development, which is a really sort of big theme in in any major city, certainly in LA, Mm -hmm. to state legislation that had to do with both housing policy, but also homelessness. Uh, downtown Los Angeles um, is, is home to an area called Skid Row, which is uh, an area, um, I guess, notorious for being... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's become sort of a generic term for, yeah, you know, types of neighborhood. There's a lot of homelessness and people who are unsheltered. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, every every sort of city in in America probably has its own its its own Skid Row. And in LA, it is it, it's capital S, capital R, uh, in 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 the neighborhood. So um, I was writing a lot about poverty. I was writing a lot about the intersection between crime, housing, poverty, uh, etc. So how did I, so random question just sprang to mind is so how did <laughs> what's the origin of the name Skid Row? Do you know? Yeah, Skid Row. It actually comes from um, it's 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 an interesting story. Um, it refers to the um, the communities that sprang up in the Pacific Northwest, Washington, and also sort of southwestern Canada logging communities. So logging was a, was a big industry, and as you can imagine, the way that that logging would would work in the mid twentieth century is you have these communities of laborers that are moving along with 
uh, mm-hmm. really the, 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 the current of a river. And the, the logs themselves were, they were moving down the ri- river, but occasionally they were skidding through these, these mud tracks as the lumber, as the timber was being transported from forests ultimately to, you know, to cities or outskirts of cities where they would be processed into, you know, usable um, wood products. And primarily the laboring community, which was well known to be uh, very much exploited in, 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 that, in that process, was kind of a nomadic tribe of, of, of laborers. And there was basically essentially a cottage industry that sprung up sort of following this, um, you know, this, this tribe of, of, of laborers, which became associated with low-income working communities, um, the the neighborhoods along those paths would um, have you know be known for things like prostitution, et cetera, and so that that was sort of the origin of the of the name. Huh, <laughs> fascinating story. All right, so uh, yeah, you get eight years or so into your career and decide you're looking for a change. Why why sales? Well. I actually, so it, at the time it wasn't why sales. The, the first job that I took um, at the time with a really interesting and an exciting uh, company called Nation Builder, which is a, a, a SaaS product that helps political campaigns, nonprofit um, organizing efforts. Um, I, I became very interested in that company. I barely knew at the time that I was actually taking a sales job, but the reason I decided to change my career pretty drastically is because I essentially became bored at being professionally agnostic all the time. <laughs> you know, I had this kind of <laughs> yearning to be, instead of documenting what was happening, I wanted to be a, a participant in mm-hmm. change essentially. And, um, and then, yeah, I got really um, excited by a, a particular company, again, Nation Builder, which really interesting technology, still really interesting technology. They're a real giant in the space of, of primarily political technology. And I would, I decided I got excited about that company and I would have taken just about any job. And the, the job that I was ostensibly qualified for was an entry level sales job. They didn't mm-hmm. call it. It was essentially an, an SDR position. And, um, and so, yes, that was, that was a, in some ways a major change. But interesting. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, I, but what did you think about it at the time? Because I'm fascinated about this. Is is yeah, you're some number of years into your career. You were yeah more mature uh, person compared to yeah in terms of just chronological age, chronological chronological age, if nothing else, compared to people oftentimes that you know entry level sales jobs. What did you know, you do? You feel like you were taking a step back to to start again. <laughs> you know, there was a little bit of, there would have been a little bit of that impulse because you're right to presume that I was significantly older than the other folks in, in my hiring class. Maybe not significantly, but, but I would say four to eight years older. But one of the other things that led me to be open to a change was anticipating growing a family. Um, mm-hmm. Hard, hard to do that on a, on a reporter salary. Um, <laughs> so while it was an entry level job in SaaS sales, it was actually still an exciting new beginning for me professionally. Um, right. Because I mean, e- even even that promised um, a, a more 
lucrative position, to be honest, than, sure. uh, yeah, than being a, a newspaper reporter. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably the reason a lot of people sort of find their way into sales eventually. I mean, gosh, I can't remember of the thousand plus episodes we've done here, how many of the guests started as educators. And it was really not that they didn't love educating people, but just sort of the financial rewards or sort of potential financial rewards sort of led them into, into selling. Yeah, that's right. Perfect. Yeah. Perfectly rational. Uh, let's, let's talk about, cause clearly you take some of the, the lessons that you learned as a reporter into sales and you and I've talked some of this before, but I mean, I think some really, uh, interesting lessons. So let's, let's talk about some of those. So one, as you say, the, lessons from the newsroom is that the only objective is to deeply understand, which I write about in my new book, but uh, tell me what that means for you. Yeah, I think, um, well, one of the things that made sales come naturally to me in, in that position was that I couldn't have d- described that lesson necessarily. Again, the only objective is to deeply understand at the time Mm-hmm. It's just that that was my professional mandate on a day-to-day basis for the, for the previous eight to nine years. Right. Uh, I had an excellent mentor in, in journalism. And one of the things he always used to say is don't let him off the phone until you know the dog's name. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, I would say don't let him off the phone until you understand why they called the dog that, but yeah, go ahead. Ooh, yeah, I mean better. And I'm, that's why I'm, I'm glad you're, you're, you're among my family of mentors. So but yeah, I mean, that is sort of the spirit of it. And whereas I think, you know, the inclination for most young professionals when they're getting into sales is to understand why somebody should be interested enough in your product to take a meeting or ultimately to buy your product. It's just secondary, tertiary to like, do you understand them? And I was just so wired because that's, that's really all I had to do. Mm-hmm. As a newspaper reporter, you don't really have to do anything with that understanding other than to document it. What I realized in sales is that if you can thrive and excel in that understanding the person and prove that you can put it into writing or otherwise articulate it, which is, you know, we can talk more about this, but is, yeah, I think we're really trust coming to that. Yeah. Yeah, then everything else falls into place. So when I say the only objective is to deeply understand, of course, there's more that goes into being an effective salesperson. But it's my way of underscoring that as sort of a foundational principle and value that um, it, it's the only thing that matters. It's the only it's the only objective um, because everything after that is just easy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I agree on that. And it's is. Yeah, I, I think there's this gap that exists between knowing and understanding. Mm-hmm. And I think in sales, so often when people become accustomed to sort of saying, look, in our playbook, we have these 10 questions, or I develop my own set of questions over time that become the ones I reliably ask buyers, is your information gathering, but you don't understand why they called their dog spot. <laughs> And you know they have a dog called Spot, but you don't understand why they named it Spot. And I think that this gap is is you know the gap that sellers fall into that they're you know, unable to really say, look, I really deeply understand because yeah, I don't. I know stuff, but I don't understand it. 
Yeah, I, I should say that one of the things I love most about um, your book is this is a theme that permeates it is you simultaneously acknowledge the value of frameworks and encourage your reader, which it, I mean, you, you're, you, the, the book is really geared towards sellers themselves. There's a lot mm-hmm. to learn for, 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 for managers, but there's just great advice for, for um, you know, individual contributor sellers. Value framework, understand the importance of that, but also be skeptical of rigid to-do lists, right? Um, and create, create and evolve your, your own framework because yeah, you can, you can, and I'd actually argue you should have a go-to list of discovery questions Mm -hmm. or things to do in a particular process, but those questions are not going to matter or not going to be effective at helping you deeply understand if you don't have that curiosity gene or you're not working to cultivate it. Yeah. Or if you're give up too easily. (laughs) Right is is you know, I'll listen to conversations, record conversations, and the seller will ask a question. The you can tell in the buyer's response that they're leaving the door open to say, "Ask me more about this." Mm. But sellers take the answer and say, "Oh, okay," and then they go to the next question, mm-hmm. and then it's like, "Well, what did we miss here?" I mean, I, I sort of think about what would what would journalism look like if if the questions were asked like. Too often, like sellers ask, you know, that the somebody's there and wanting to reveal more, but it's not going to come unless you ask about it. So, perfect example of a of a tactical skill that I developed as a newspaper reporter that I believe every seller needs to um, needs to develop, and it's something that we work on and we practice routinely and continue to come back to here at um, at, at Revenue.io which is reflective listening. So um, as a newspaper reporter, one of the things that you learn either if you get training or as a device to be basically effective at the job is when you're doing interviews, whether it's over the course naturally in the conversation or certainly at the end of the conversation, it's like, hold on a second. This conversation is not over. We cannot move on until... You give me the space and the opportunity to reflect back to everything that I just heard. And I may editorialize a little bit if I want to key you into how I'm synthesizing this information. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. reason I have to do this is because my objective, again, is to understand. My objective is to ultimately reflect my observations um, around whatever the issue is that that I'm reporting on and and to get it right, right? Um, And so... like, why would I skip the step of reflecting it back and telling you exactly what it is that I heard, my understanding of why that matters generally, what my understanding of why that matters to you? And 100% of the time, 100% of the time, that reflection, either over the course of the conversation or at the end, it leads either to critical clarity that you get from the person that you're talking to. They'll say, hey, mm-hmm. you've almost got it, but this. Or... What it gets to is really emphasis. It's like, yeah, you got it. Like, yes, and. And, and there, there comes the magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I again, write about this in the book is to say when you finish that reflective step and the buyer says, yes, you've got it, then there's one more question you have to ask. And that question is, great. So what are we missing? Mm-hmm. What are we missing? And I find that that 
And I found that that is like, wow. For people, it's like just those simple words like, oh, yeah, just opens the doors again. It's like, yeah, let's get into this because I think there is something missing. And if you're wired to like truly deeply understand that what happens is you, you, you realize that you're, you're always in pursuit of, of deeper understanding. I, I, think, I think what are we missing is, is exactly the right question. What I've always used is like just when I think I've got everything. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's what else. But I, I, right. like, I, I like what are we missing better. Well, I'd use what else. I mean, so I'll say it's, yeah, we'll go in terms of follow-up questions. Yeah, well, what else can you tell me about that? Well, then, then, then when it gets to the end, we think, okay, we've played out the follow-up questions. Uh, you know, what else can you tell me? Or tell me more about that. Do the reflection. Everybody's in agreement. Yeah, we've captured the understanding. We get it. That's when you go, okay, fine. But what are we missing? Mm-hmm. And that's just... It's a question that doesn't get asked, but it opens a door for the buyers oftentimes say, yeah, you know, there's just one more thing. Andy, I'm wondering, have you found in your, in your sales career, both as a seller, as someone who has led sales teams, as someone who's had, had, had advised other sellers, mm-hmm. that you find sellers who develop the capability to do this conversationally, but then struggle to put it into writing? Oh, interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's something we want, we're definitely going to talk about it because you, you believe that if, if, and you sort of talked about it, if, if you can't reduce it, the understanding to writing, then you truly don't understand it. That's right. Um, and I think there's tremendous value in someone being able to do just what you said, to be able to write the understanding, uh, in a way that can be fed back to the buyer to reflect not only that you understand, but also perhaps give some insight or clarity about, yeah, their challenges, the outcomes they could, they could uh, potentially achieve. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's very valuable, but yeah, I think there's many sellers that can ask the questions, but then take that understanding and have a hard time reflecting it back to the buyer in a compelling fashion. Yeah, I, and I think for I, I, I mean, I, I ask the question because I'm sincerely curious what your observation is there. I, I definitely find that all the time. Um, I, I think it is it's easier to find like when I think about hiring and evaluating candidates. Um, you know, I talk to a lot of candidates who I find in the first conversation are excellent communicators, at least verbally thoughtful. It's really clear that they're they're innately good listeners. Maybe practice good listeners. Maybe they've been well trained in things like reflective listening. And I ask every account executive candidate that I meet and that I like and who I want to continue to spend time with. So free tip for like the 10% of candidates who are going to make their way eventually to, to this, to this interview. Um, I ask all candidates that I like to send me a writing sample. And this is not immediately disqualifying because there's not a lot of great, I think, teaching and instruction on this. But a lot of those excellent communicators, the writing samples that they send, and I ask for examples of writing to you know, customers that you send during a deal process. Mm-hmm. So much of what I see is, and, and what they presume I'm looking to evaluate, is written communication that is you know, about their product. Yeah, advocacy. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's advocacy. And so you're using email and writing through the process to sort of c- continue to sell. 
Now, what I'm looking for, and it's rare to find this. Again, it's not disqualifying, but what I'm looking for is, is the emphasis of your written communication about demonstrating and aligning with the customer that you understand. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was, it was that first conversation or whether it, it, is, it is a final conversation. And that simple rewiring of the brain to use email communication, to use written communication as a pulse check and an opportunity always to continue to ground the conversation in, I understand, or customer, please evaluate for me whether I understand, is it's, it's transformative. Uh, because if you know and you start to build the habit that, hey, every, every seller, every halfway decent seller is going to send some form of written communication after m- most interactions – if they anticipate that they're going to have to document it, it also changes that brain chemistry. So you're focusing on understanding in the conversation itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think a, a tool, a tool, a, a tip technique, whatever the, the seller should use is, which again, I don't see used very often is just something as simple as when you do, you know, synthesize what you've heard which I think is a great word. You use it. I've, I use it a lot as well. And something that humans do that machines can't readily do. So it's one of your advantages as a human to lean into your ability to synthesize information that you pick up from buyers. And you reflect it back and you've summarized your understanding is just to simply ask the buyer to confirm that you have it right. Mm-hmm. Did I get that right? Is this, you know, does this you know, align with your understanding? Just something simple. It's like, you know, giving yourself, like I call it, the, a Yelp rating after you send an email. Ask the buyer to rate. Did, how'd you do? Thousand, one of the things I used to do as, a, as, a, as an individual rep, this is, this is a nice little tactical um, thing that, that uh, reps out there can, can experiment with. Instead of putting my reflection, especially from discovery, early stages, mm-hmm. Instead of putting my reflection, my recap, um, what what I've um, what, what I now call the challenge email, it's evolved o- over time. Uh, instead of putting that in the body of the email, um, I'll send an email thanking them for the time, etc., and saying, "Hey, I took the time to to capture my understanding of where you're at." Um, or also, sort of get into the next steps. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a look at this. And give me some feedback before our next interaction because this understanding from today is kind of guiding my preparation for the next mm-hmm. step. Mm-hmm. And then what I would do is I'd link to um, to a, a Google Doc and I would intentionally not give them permission to access it. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I do that is the first, I just need to know, like we could still do the, the next meeting, but... If you didn't request access, I know for sure, right? You have an interaction. These days, there's really amazing, like you know, SaaS products, um, right. for, you know, for, for for doing that kind of thing. But if you don't have access to that as a seller, there 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 is a simple trick. Um, but then either way, the next step in your meeting, no matter where you are in your sales process, spend two to seven minutes, whatever it is, throw it up on the screen. Hey, this is my understanding. This is where we are. Here's my understanding. Here's how my understanding has evolved. Before we move into the rest of the agenda, pulse check. Mm-hmm. What do I have wrong is another question. Right. That's uh, similar to what are we missing? What do I have wrong? Absolutely. I love that with uh, <laughs> denying permission. <laughs> there are little things like that that, that uh, can have a big impact. I may have, I may have told you I had you know, one client that 
that uh, sold a product as a mixture of software and hardware. Uh, the software ran on a particular platform. They ran, but everybody invariably wanted to see a demo. <laughs> and we would have the this person that was you know, engaged with them at that stage. Generally, we didn't split between SDRs and AEs. We had lifecycle reps at that time. But um, but when they were, were talking to the the prospect, the prospect invariably wanted to see a, a demo. And they'd always say, can we schedule a time to do a demo? And <laughs> I trained the sellers to say no. Mm-hmm. But we can do one right now. Mm. And send them the link. And they'd hop on to a demo. <laughs> nice. It it was amazing how well that converted over time because you just short circuited. Why did we want to add another day or two into the process? They had if they had time. They would, if they didn't have time. They'd say no. But almost all the time, the buyer was interested in doing it right then. Keep the momentum going. Yeah, that's really good. It's also an incredibly effective way to um, to verify whether they're they're demo interest is sincere or whether, cause sometimes people say, sure, I'll do a demo if it's in the context of, you know, you've, you've reached out to them proactively, you know, right. trying to get them into a cycle and say, yeah, yeah, cool. We, you know, we'll do a demo, but what they're really trying to do is, is brush it's you off. Huh. Yeah. Right. And then they don't show up for it. Right. Yeah. It, it makes the yield for demos much higher when you do it that way. Yeah. One of the things we try to teach our SDRs to do is the most common objection you get in a cold call. And we actually have data that confirms and, and tracks this. Um, but for us and, and for many of our customers is, yeah, send me an email, which is mm-hmm. nobody wants the email. It's, act, it's just a brush off. It's just an objection. And so there's a number of things that, that we train the team to do. But when, when we get that, it's something to the effect of. And what about what I shared so far is most interesting to make sure that what I'm going to send you is most relevant. And nine times out of 10, whatever it is that they share is something that, you know, we can answer or show them right now, right in the moment, same thing. Like, Hey, I mean, if you've got seven minutes, here's a, I'll text you a link to a zoom, like here it comes or, Hey, we're on the phone. I just texted you a link to this particular thing. Why don't we just hang in the line? Take, take a look is, Mm -hmm. is you've got it. Now, what do you think? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I right. I mean, people want to get people off the phone, but I think that if you handle that conversation carefully, as you sort of talked about, is yeah, you may find out if they get exposed to it. Yeah, if they invest additional five minutes, yep, yeah, nope, we're not a fit, or yeah, let's keep it going, let's keep talking. Yeah. So, um, all right. So you talk. We talked about if, if you can't write, can't know it. Well, how do you you talk about using? Assessing writing skills during the interview process. Mm-hmm. How are you helping sellers learn to become better writers? Making well, first of all, connecting the dots between you know how we teach discovery and then how how we communicate back that discovery. So there's some there's some simple tactical things you can build into your sales motion that make writing, and in particular, I would say you know meeting recap communication just such a core aspect of doing the job and doing the job well. So mm-hmm. let, 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 for example, a couple of those things are, um, number one, actually, um, something that you and I ha- have talked a ton about is I- I've implemented a, a framework here at revenue.io for, uh, for meeting recap, particularly recapping, uh, discovery conversations. I referenced it earlier in the conversation. It's called the mm-hmm. challenge email. 
And I, I think we confirmed that there are a lot of folks out there, managers, individual contributors who are hungry to get better at this because uh, you generously shared um, a resource that I basically I made a, this template available to the sales community, which, which you shared about on, on LinkedIn. I, I think it's been our most popular piece of content at revenue.io and something like that. Um, it's, well, it's, talk about the specifics of what the challenge email is. Yeah. So the most important thing to understand about this template and this framework for recapping conversations is, as I've been saying before, is that it's all, it, it's about the customer. And what right. I, what I tell, you know, our reps is that like, you don't need to send them a link or include a link to our case study if you're going to include information that is sort of selling or is sort of marketing information, you better be damn certain that that if they click on that link and they arrive at that landing page or whatever it is, that that's actually going to be valuable to them. Right. And it's worth their time and attention. Worth their time and attention. That's how you have to think about it. And most of the time, that content, especially early on in the cycle, it, it, you know, it isn't. They know where to find that information. And nothing is more valuable at that stage in the sales process um, as demonstrating that you are re- really listening and that, that you really understood. So I got to say that the challenge email, like the, the training to be able to do it, it actually starts with the the training and discovery. We talked about it before. It's it's training and reflective listening. So mm-hmm. you know, making sure you can verbally reflect back your understanding and, and doing that intentionally throughout a conversation. But then when you're done. The, the the challenge email is it, it's really simple. It is it's an articulation in writing of what you understand their relevant business challenges to be, and then critically, this is really important: is what's the impact of those challenges? Mm-hmm. Right. And now this this documentation of their challenges and their business impacts. The, the beautiful thing about this is you're you're not going to have a a, a thorough understanding of that after you know, a 40 minute conversation. Right. I mean, you, you'll have a real, you potentially have a really, really, really strong outline, but what you've got is a blueprint for where you need to continue to dive deeper and, and, and further that understanding. Mm-hmm. But yeah, imagine a simple layout of a document or, or an email where, you know, if, if you uncover say two challenges, well, there's two headings, challenge and then impact. And what I instruct the team to do, and here comes the journalism background is to think of describing those challenges almost like you're writing a newspaper headline, right? So don't say, for example, that, hey, we came out of this conversation, you know, challenge one, I have a manual sales process. That's a, potentially an important problem, um, something that a technology like revenue.io that is doing things like automating the capture of sales activity, et cetera, mm-hmm. getting activity gains, et cetera, you know, can, can solve, that, that's... It's a headline that we could put in just about any email. That's not really a great way to articulate the, the challenge, even if even if it's accurate. Something a little better could be something like, "My rep, your reps are wasting thousands of hours, you know, per week doing monotonous, mind-numbing data entry." <laughs> right. And then the impact may get into quantifying, you know, the opportunity sure. cost of not op- of, of of not uh, of not automating that. And so, then when you talk about oh, how do you train them to do that? Well, the first thing again, so for the managers in the room, for the managers listening is you just you need some sort of a template or framework and you can get the one that we use for for free at at revenue.io, but you know, 
have some sort of a framework, have some sort of a template. And then you just have to really have discipline around. This is a core part of what it means to, to, to sell on this team and don't wait, start small, learn as you go. It's a, that's a motto that I, that I love from a sales consultant and friend of mine, um, Bobby Dysart. And so when you're doing inspection in deals, like every deal that you review, whether you're in the CRM or you're talking one-on-ones, any deal that I'm talking to a rep about, they'll tell you that pretty much the first thing I'm going to ask them to do is like, let's pull up the challenge email. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it starts to dominate the conversation. And so just the act of doing, the, the rep, repetitive act of doing that, and then the conversations we have around you know, um, how we could communicate this differently or what the challenge email revealed about uh, something we may have missed in discovery is what over time enables them to really uh, sharpen their writing knife, if you will. Yeah, well, what you're talking about is, which I think is fascinating, is, is again, coming out from a journalistic perspective, is writing the lead mm-hmm. or a hook if you want to do it from more of a you know advertising campaign yep. perspective is that's going to get somebody to to read right that's right and engage with it you know it, it's funny actually I, i've seen there is speaking of what's going to get people to read um i mean anybody who's really serious at sales should be curious uh, about that um especially as it relates to things like like lead gen um there's there's of course been this I guess you could call it a trend of, of LinkedIn writing where thought leaders or people, you know, content creators, people are posting on LinkedIn. They're writing these, um, you know, concise posts where you have a, a short statement and, you know, you've got a paragraph line break and then you have this sort of chorus of, um, I'll call them haters who have noticed that as a trend and are sort of poking fun at that. And I, 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 I will, I, to push right back. I mean, the reason we're seeing that trend is first of all, it wasn't invented for LinkedIn. Go pick up the New York Times or your favorite Wall Street right. Journal. Right. And if you look at those paragraphs, those paragraphs are a sentence or two. Right. The folks who have been studying what readability they, they is. Just put, they just didn't put an extra space between them. That's right. Well, you know, they needed <laughs> yeah. to save that 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 real estate. But um, but yeah, like that readability is really, really, really important. Yeah, well, I'm, people scan, right? I mean, that's that's part of the reason I'm guilty of of the thing that haters don't like is is when I post on LinkedIn, LinkedIn, which I you know do at least daily, is you know the you look at your stats, you look at the engagement. It's it's what are people engaging with? Increasingly these days, people want to quickly scan things, and then they may come back and read it in more depth, but. And I think your buyer is the same thing. You're going to want to structure your email in the exact same way so that they don't look at a big block of text and say, eh, let me <laughs> let me go to write the next thing that catches my eye. So you want to know another trick that's going to make sure that they're not only going to scan, but they're going to pay attention? That I also yeah. from newspaper sure. writing. You ready? It's going to sound really, really obvious. Nobody does it. I mean, well, our our folks are doing it. When when you do it, it, wow, does it work? Ready? It's really simple. Quote the customer. Put it in quotes. Make the font size two points bigger. So, you know, when you're describing that that challenge around my reps are wasting thousands of hours a week doing monotonous data entry tasks, that may be the headline, 
But underneath that, I may start my articulation of the business impact with a big pull quote. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm banging my head against the keyboard trying to get my reps to do X, Y, Z, you know, dash, dash, End quotes. Yes. Mary, Mary Samson, head of sales development. And so right. she, you know, she sees her name. She sees her exact quote. She feels really heard and listened to. Um, yeah, you do that in your recap cap emails and you are really, really going to stand out against the competition. Great suggestion. Great suggestion. I love that. Well, so another topic, I would sort of heading down sort of more of the path, that, again, from journalism to sales, lessons you've taken from one to the other. It, one that I'm just such a huge believer in is you, know, you talk about trust as your currency as a journalist, mm-hmm. right? But also, obviously, we, we know this as a seller as well. Uh, and you talk about, you know, if, why would a reader keep reading or, you know, seek out your byline in the, in the next issue of the paper or magazine or whatever, if you gave them reason to mistrust you, or more, even more importantly, would your sources ever you know, pick up the phone and talk to you again if if they didn't trust you? And this gets in the heart of selling, which is that there is this fundamental belief, I think it comes from the way sellers are trained, which is just the assumption that if you ask somebody a question, you're going to get an answer. Without this idea that that... Yeah, you may get an answer, but you're not going to get the answer. You have to earn the right to get that that detail through trust building. Yep. And if you aren't intentional about saying, okay, what are the steps I take to to build trust with the buyer? Yeah, they're like a. Like I said one of your one of your sources, unnamed sources, is yeah, they're not going to give you the whole truth. Yeah, or worse, one of your name sources. You know, yeah, or even one of your name sources. Yeah. And this is this is saying that just yeah, I keeps emphasizing this and the message, yeah, we need to do a better job getting this message through is that yeah, you may ask a question. First of all, buyers are no obligation to answer it. If they do, well, I might pose the question to you. I mean, when you're asking somebody a question as a journalist, when you were asking questions as a journalist, did you take their initial answer at face value? I mean, it. Sort. De- I guess it depends on the context. Um, I think. I think it comes back to making it really clear to your your counterpart. If you stay in journalism, you know, if you if you're talking to a particular source, when they really understand that your mission is to is to really get it and to and, and to understand them, mm-hmm. um, and you are you're really not going to stop or you're not going to move forward until you really have it. And you're going to go to the length to reflect back what, what exactly it is that you understand. What starts to happen in the brain and journalism for that source is they're like, okay, wait a minute. Yeah, this is, this is, so this is, this is what they're going to put into the paper. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of what you're talking about in, in your question is like, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, you know, BS detection that to be honest is actually way more relevant in, I think being in newspaper writing than, than, than it is in, in, in sales, um, which is, you know, an interesting conversation in and of itself. But when you show someone like, no, I'm not moving on until I get it. And this is what I currently understand. They start to realize that one, um, you know, they can't stay on the surface. This is somebody Mm -hmm. who actually is paying attention so I, I like I, I better make sure I get it right. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, there's some research I've read that it said that actually buyers do the same thing. Well, yeah, you know, as a seller, you could say, I, I'm not going to move on until I understand. Yeah, there's research done about uh, adopting change, you know, how people go through the process of adopting changes. Mm-hmm. And and what this researcher found out, whose name I forget right at the top of my head, is found that, yes, you know, people go through this, I think she laid out sort of a five or six step process for people ad- adapting a new change or adopting a new change, is is they stop when they don't have an understanding and they won't move forward until they get their questions answered. Mm-hmm. So at each step along the way, if there are unanswered questions, they stop. Yeah. And, yeah. and the relevance to sales is a couple fold, but one is, and I've certainly have seen this and I looked, read this paper pretty early in my career actually, but it was, was that this idea that, you know, the, the buying process is not a monolithic process. Right. If they are talking, if the buyer is talking to three vendors, there's a different pace for each, each vendor they're speaking with. Mm. And yeah, you could think you're still in the midst of the process, but yeah, the buyers basically stopped because they had questions for you that you didn't answer. Yeah. And, and you didn't answer. And, and not only did they not get the answer, but they're, they're starting to make decisions about where you live on the spectrum of trust, which is to say on the wrong end. <laughs> on the wrong end. Well, yeah. But the thing is, it's interesting about the fact is, yeah, questions you didn't answer. Well, the first part of that is they needed you to ask some of those questions first. Sure. Yeah. Right. Because people know, well, I don't, don't think I really know enough to make a decision. It's not like they want to ask you a bunch of questions about that as they sometimes don't know the questions they should be asking. So how do you, Andy, think about teaching and advising sellers how to be intentional about cultivating trust? Because we haven't broken any news that trust is important, right? And I think we've covered like critical ground here that, you know, when I talk about reflective listening or I talk about making the recap email all about the customer and that the only objective is to understand, I mean, it should be said clearly that that, that universe of focus, emphasis, and activity is, you know, is you could just wrap that up and say that that is empathy. And what that does mm. is it does create trust. But what else? Like, how do we instruct people? How do we people be intentional about cultivating that? I hear you saying, for example, you know, asking really good questions early on and preventing them from having to ask it in the future creates trust. What else? Well, I have a people are think this is a setup question, but it's not a setup question. <laughs> it is so I have a, an acronym I use in, in my new book for building trust. I call it MICE, M-I-C-E. Mm-hmm. So force or areas. One is M stands for motivations. Is are your motivations this is for building trust? Are your motivations transparent to your buyer? Meaning, if you say, "Yeah, I'm I'm here to help," right? As opposed to "I'm here to convince you to buy my product." That's an important distinction in motivations. And so, are you clear about that? And it's okay to be to have your motivations to be a what I call a giver with an agenda. It's okay for the buyer to understand that, yeah, if you are able to help them succeed, you too will succeed. Mm -hmm. That's okay. 
right? But if you're just there about yourself, they're going to quickly cotton onto that. So M is for motivation. So your motivation is transparent. I is for integrity. Is if you say to the buyer, I am here to help, then your actions need to align with your words. And the most common failing that happens in sales is the seller goes out and says, hey, I'm, I'm here to help. And then it gets to the last week of the month, and even though the buyer's not ready to make a decision, hey, let's go offer them a big discount to sign this week. Suddenly you've changed the nature of that relationship from being there to help to being just about yourself. Mm-hmm. And most common example, and it doesn't mean that the buyer won't buy from you necessarily afterwards, but it means they're under no illusion about what the relationship is. It suddenly became very transactional instead of a partnership. Mm-hmm. See us for credibility. You sort of got to know what you're talking about and that you can, can help them. They have to have a sense of confidence. You can help them. And the E is for execution. So you have to live up to your commitments. You know, during the selling process, we establish various commitments we make with a buyer. Yeah, I'm going to get back to it at a certain time. Uh, you know, just as an example, <clears throat> one that's a common failing, and then you don't get back to them at a certain time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just four things to keep in mind. Are your motivations transparent? Do you have integrity, meaning do your actions align with your words? Do you have credibility about what you're talking about? And are you executing on your commitments? If you do that, then you build trust. Yeah, it's so good. So good. Um, love a good acronym, MICE. I think I talk with my team a lot about, you know, when they're when they're trying to work through a a moment of being stuck in a deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They tend to be really clear, of course, on what it is that they want, which is a next step for a particular reason that is moving toward toward a sale. Right. right. Um, and it's all about me at that point. Yeah. But the, the thing that's really interesting is if you've done a decent job early on in the process, you know, if if you if you've done a good job of understanding, you know, your customer and their business and their challenges and the alignment between their challenges, its impact and your ability mm-hmm. to help them with your technology or otherwise. I've found that with the right framing in that conversation and, 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 and the right creative reflection, um, you can usually align what you desire as the next step to something that actually is of value to the customer. You just momentarily are stuck in me zone just because you're stuck in me zone right now. doesn't mean you can't step out of yourself reframe it and realize where there is alignment between what it is that you want and what's valuable to the customer. You're most likely just getting distracted or stuck by, um, quota pressure. Yeah, well, absolutely. But when you're stuck though, again, the reflex for sellers should be to think about, okay, the buyer's waiting for me. Mm -hmm. They're waiting for me. So what, what do I need to ask them? Right. What do I need to better understand about what they're concerned about in order to help them move forward at this point. Of course. And also like if, even though my previous point is that oftentimes what you want is well aligned with what is of service to what's going to be valuable to, to the customer. You just, you haven't done the the, the work to understand where the alignment is, mm-hmm. but when mm-hmm. it's not, Oh my God, what an amazing gift to realize that in the reflection that your motivation and theirs is misaligned. Okay, cool. You know, now we know what we need to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Ryan, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but this has been a great conversation. It has. Um, 
Always enjoy it, Andy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm sitting here knocking my microphone onto the floor as, as I was talking to you. Sorry, I apologize to the listeners. Uh, so if people want to connect with you, what's what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I'd say LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn, uh, Ryan Valancourt, VP of Sales at Revenue.io. Um, if you're interested in the challenge email, which we've been talking about, again, you can um, – you can find that um, on on the site. I don't know if, if that's something maybe Andy you could link in the show notes. Um, sure, but also yeah, they can reach out to you directly on LinkedIn to ask for that too. Absolutely, please do. Yeah, or me if you want to leak. We still have it. Uh, I think we, I think we gave it out roughly five thousand times last year. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I'm not exaggerating. I think it was around five thousand people that responded to that particular LinkedIn post when we talked about the challenge email template. So, if you want that. Yeah, you can DM Ryan or DM me, and we'll make sure you get it. Yeah, honestly, I'll, I'll tell you one one last thing on that. I, I offered to a couple people at some point when we shared it before, like, hey, if you adopt this with your team, um, this is my passion. Like, I would be sincerely happy to um, to meet with you, to meet with your team. If if you're working on uh, on adopting a framework like this, and you want me to take a look at, at some of the examples and, and give suggestions, especially if you're a manager, if you want to talk through how you actually operationalize that. Mm-hmm. I really do love doing that. So, so don't be shy. Reach out. Uh, happy to help. Perfect. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Ryan Valancourt for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help, and thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.